Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This episode was produced by Ben Murray. On this episode, we caught up with a buddy of mine, Marshall Johnson. Marshall followed a family tradition of service by graduating from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point 45 years after his father did. He served as an airborne infantry officer and is a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. When Marshall decided it was time to move on, he applied for business school as a transitionary step toward a civilian career. This landed him as an investment banker before making another career pivot to corporate strategy and large-scale data operations. Marshall has a knack for constantly improving operations and a track record of always leaving places better than he found them. He also has a very cool way of dealing with life as it comes. You know, change goals when it makes sense. Like, have the grit to drive through things, but have the intelligence to to step back and think about the broader picture and, and then strategically make a shift when it makes sense. We hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Thanks for listening. All right. Marshall, you were going to be one of our first guests, but we deferred so that because you were procreating at the time and now you're actually on paternity leave. <laughs> That's right. I have a daughter now, so my, my life is completely different than it was when we talked last, so it should be fun. We asked this of Jim Matheson. We asked a few people, but Jim was from like a very military family, all three of his brothers, his father, and they were all like same branch. They were all naval aviators. You determined early on that you were going to be in the Army, and you said that it was a family business, right? Yep, that's right. My dad was uh, a West Point guy, career infantry guy, and then um, on my mom's side, my grandfather, like everybody in his generation, was um, World War II vet, storm the beach of Normandy type guy. So I um, had a bit of a precedent in my family, and, and knowing a bunch of folks that, that we know, it, it really is just like you know medical and finance and other fields. It, it ends up being kind of a family business. The army is, yeah. is absolutely like that. Yeah. You moved around a lot as a kid because your your dad was like, you said he's a career. He was a colonel by the time he got out. Yeah, actually, um, he almost had two careers, right? He had his military career from graduating all the way through being a um, kind of a senior officer, uh, retired, and then had me. And then his second whole career was raising me. <laughs> um, okay. But, uh, but you know, he worked in finance and stuff later in life, but I, I didn't grow up in a traditional military household moving around all the time. I was born in D.C. after he got out and then kind of followed the second tier of his life where he went through moving down. His, my mom's parents were old at the time in New Orleans, so we they made the decision to move the family down to New Orleans. And then from there, moved to the Gulf Coast in Mississippi. And that's kind of where I grew up was New Orleans, Mississippi. You said that he was the picture of military officer in your mind and obviously very influential. So I guess kind of at what age did you start leaning that way? And you also said that he didn't really push you that way either. He just kind of set an example that you always admired and wanted to follow. Yeah, I think um, it's kind of the traditional view of, of a, like a senior military officer, right? Like he was, he stood up straight, he walked into a room and, and people just deferred, like he must be the person in charge of this, whatever we're doing. That kind of stuff. And you notice that as like a young, a young person, you just notice that people, he has like a kind of an air to him. And so like that kind of aura, I, I latched onto early. And then, I mean, it's kind of funny, but as a little kid, I went to a, um, like a, a summer talent show. I was like probably four or five. My parents showed me this, like last week I was down in Mississippi and they showed my, my wife and I, this video of me at like a five-year-old. And, um, and I, I came home and told my mom all excited. I was like, oh, I'm in the talent show. And she was like, that's great. What, what talents do you have? And, and I was like, well, I'm just going to, 
I'm going to you know, do the manual of arms, which is basically just like rifle stuff where you, you know, present arms and right shoulder arms and that kind of stuff. And so I'm, there's this video of me as like a five-year-old marching onto stage and I hit play on my little record, like little kid recorder. And it's me like barking orders out and I'm just like doing the commands as a little kid. But I just found it fascinating from the beginning. And then growing up, I learned more and more about just the military and over time picked up stories from my dad, just things he'd remember or things he'd like drip into conversation. And it was never meant to shape any direction for me. It was just like memories he had of a, a life before me where he'd be like, oh, there's this one time and he'd just tell a story. And that kind of stuff just shaped my my view of of like what it means to be in the military. So, you know, kind of a life of service and the sacrifices you make, the hard work it takes to get to where you get and that kind of stuff that I think just stuck with me through the rest of my life so far. I don't want to derail, but it makes me think of this story. I had a company commander and he had two kids. They're probably like five and six years old and they were at some company picnic and they were all into army stuff and everything. They were wearing his, his camo hat and whatever. And one of them goes, I'm a ranger. And the other one goes, no, I'm a ranger and punches the other kid in the face. <laughs> and then they start fighting. So oh, man, maybe they're both rangers. Yeah, maybe they are. Uh, yeah. But your dad was like a Viet- big Vietnam guy. I mean, not big Vietnam guy, but like he was very decorated from Vietnam. And did he... Did he bring that stuff up to you at a young age or it was just like things that he would say kind of in conversation that would that would leave kind of the more subtle mark on you? It was he was definitely he never took Vietnam home with him. So it was one of those things where, you know, you kind of have two different distinct groups of vets from Vietnam, the ones who kind of put it on the shelf and forgot about it and the ones who kind of brought it home with them and couldn't really ever let go. And you see that, I mean, through every major conflict, we still see that today. But it was one of those things where he never brought it up or talked about it. And then I remember as a kid, he had these like these, I don't know, like relics, I don't know. But like he had some rifles from from Vietnam he brought home. And there were ones that he had picked up on the battlefield from like he he was with the um, MACV at the time. So like an advisor to the Vietnamese Airborne. Um, And so he was kind of embedded with them and just on missions with them. And there was one where like a a sniper had taken out the battalion commander that he was supporting, the Vietnamese battalion commander, and like had hit, I guess had shot the commander as he bent over in front of my dad and the, his helmet knocked my dad out. But later they kind of swept the area and they found where the sniper had been sitting. And so they, they gave that rifle to my dad. And so he like, that's one of the things he kind of cherished, things like that, where it's like a memory. But he had it in like a, a, a dusty bag in the corner of the attic type thing. And I was a kid and I was wandering around. I was like, what's this? And he sat down and didn't tell me the gory story, but, but he was like, well, first of all, this is booby traps so never touch it. And it was like terrified me of weapons as a little kid. <laughs> um, but, uh, but secondly, it told me like a little bit of the story around like somebody, you know, had saved his life. And this was a, a relic about that person that he remembered them by. So hmm. things like that, where it was like, he never really talked directly about it until I was much older, really until I was in the army where he came back and started telling me more of the stories because he, he felt that it was something we could connect our bond on at that point, which I think is, is true. It's, he, he kind of said, uh, it's one of those things. Uh, it's kind of like sex. You can never describe it to somebody. You have to experience it. Um, <laughs> he, he had that kind of mentality about it. He was like, it's one of combat's one of those things where unless you've been there, it's really hard to tell the story. Um, yeah. but once you have, it's, it's easy to, to connect with people on it. Yeah. Do you have any brothers or sisters? I don't just me. They no. stopped when they got it right. So 
first time go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And your mom, I mean, she had to, you know, move around the whole time with his career and all that. Mm-hmm. Did you, did you learn anything about that? And you didn't get married until you were out of the military. Right. Yeah. So my, my mom and dad met when he was in uh, grad school, actually getting his MBA down in New Orleans at Tulane. That's where she's from. And he was still in, he was a major at the time and they met and she kind of followed his career around, but she, in her own right, was a like an intelligent person who worked at Raytheon when they were in Iran and stuff like that. So she had some jobs she picked up, but it was tough for her to kind of keep a career track as she followed him around. So, and I think that's a story that you just, you hear really, really often in military spouses, guy or girl, whoever's following the other one around is, it's really hard to keep a, a career track yourself. So she, you know, went, she kind of followed him around. We, she had a job when I was a kid in New Orleans, but after that, um, kind of st- took a step back. And she just said, you know, let's put a pause on that. I'm focusing on raising uh, my amazing son, Marshall. No. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and then um, and then from there, she just um, was more of a, like a daily presence in my life. And my dad was the one who was kind of on the road um, doing the, the full-time thing. He was working initially as a defense contractor, as many do when they leave. Yeah, um, and then in financial services in New Orleans, so he was constantly kind of on the road throughout the week and stuff like that. Yeah, what were they doing in Iran? Because they evacuated in '78, right? Yep, they were there for the revolution. He was just—he was in the army. That was his duty station. He was um, kind of in charge of the ground forces, the army component or contingent that was there at the time, doing a lot of partnership work with the Iranian military. And then things started to kind of degrade, and you know, he was helping to evacuate people out of the country. We had a very large footprint there at the time, so he was kind of helping to get as many folks out of the country as possible. And then um, once things really got to that point of kind of like full deterioration, my mom had already left. My dad was there and then left kind of post-fall type thing of the Shah and new regime was in. And they um, like brought him in, questioned him. He said that was one of the most terrifying things of his life because, you know, you go deeper and deeper in the building, I guess. And he said that the guy sitting next to him was just shivering and like just peed his pants and he was like, okay, maybe this is serious. But he, uh, he just like, like everything else kind of compartmentalized that aspect of his life. And they, you know, evacuated in 78, they lost everything they had at the time and moved back to New Orleans where my mom was from with family and just kind of parked up for six months or a year until the government figured out what it was going to do and sent him back to DC. Did you ever tell you what that was like? Was it (laughs) like, uh, I mean, aside from, you know, being brought into this deeper and deeper in his building to be questioned. Was he like <laughs> running his way to the airfield and hopping on a bird with the engines on? He, uh, he kind of says it, it's kind of tongue in cheek to an extent. After he got out of that and they kind of brought him back up and went to get the car to bring him wherever. I guess the guy was calling for a for a car and he kept saying like, the car came, he said, no, 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 like bring the Mercedes. And he was like, Jesus, it's all the same people. They just want power. So just a changing of the guard in his mind. And then it was no problem for him to get out. I think everything was more political around the hostage situation than anything else. It wasn't like this unruly, you know, mob that just couldn't be controlled. It was more of a, like, we need to take some hostages. I think that was a little after he was like, kind of, he wasn't a part of any of that scenario. So he was class of 62 West Point, you were class of 07. Mm Mm-hmm kind of both joined both joined at some pretty opportune times in our in our country's history <laughs> that's right so yeah so you applied to West Point you applied to Air Force not Navy is that right obviously not Navy for for um, you know true hometown reasons again I was never pressured into any decisions so I didn't know what I was gonna do I 
I applied to West Point after 9-11 and, and I thought that that would be a great way to kind of to have a career that would be, in my mind, similar to my dad's. I didn't know, you know, what the Army was like necessarily. I wasn't alive when he was in, right? I was kind of after his career. But I had kind of conceptualized it in my mind as a, um, a path to service. Uh, definitely after 9-11 was a, a real kind of near and dear thing to most people, I think, in the country at the time. Yeah. So it was a kind of a dual purpose in that sense to, to maybe go there. But I also had other options that were just fully civilian. I had, you know, some opportunities to go places regionally that um, no tie in any way to the military. And, and ultimately, when I sat down and thought about what life I wanted in the future, I thought the military would, would be a, a great route to put a chapter in the, in the book of my life, basically. You majored in some pretty, or you did some pretty nerdy stuff too. So you had a major that didn't exist yet when you went there. You're doing like red teaming, red team competition for the NSA. Did you picture that kind of stuff being associated with the military or did you just dive into it when you got there? I'm a, a pretty nerdy guy to start with. I've always had a strong interest in math and science and computers. I mean, in high school, I went to the, um, I mean, over the dumbest thing, but to the International Science Fair. And so that I've always had an interest in, in just things that are technical. And then when I went to West Point, I didn't know what I was going to major in. And I was kind of looking around. I thought maybe math, maybe OR, operations research. And then when I looked at the electrical engineering and computer science EECS department, there were things about electrical engineering and computer science that I liked, but I didn't like either major. And so I just went and talked to, to the, the head of the department and said, hey, like, I'd love to come be a major in EECS, but I, I don't like these. Is there any opportunity to kind of pick and choose classes to make something that, that would um, kind of fit my interests better? So surprisingly, I think, you know, if you don't ask, you can never kind of do it. So I just asked and they said, sure. They got it accredited. And then immediately after I did that, like half of the EECS department in terms of student body switched over to my major because they were like, oh, I hate electrical computer science. Like, this is cool. I can pick my own classes. So with that, I, I picked a bunch of stuff that was in that that thread. So information assurance, you know, network architecture, and then on the EECS side, microprocessor design. And, and eventually I took a it wasn't really a, a thread at the time they'd stood it up, but AI and advanced algorithms. So it was focused on kind of the beginnings of machine learning, at least in the context of what I knew existed for West Point. And I'm sure that program is a lot more advanced today than it was then. But as a part of that, with the, the Red Team kind of conference, we had this this really cool exercise there that I think is very unique to, to the academies and a select other set of schools. I think MIT participates in some other ones, but it's called the Cyber Defense Exercise. And so... They treat it just like, almost like a military exercise where you go in and they had like, like camo netting set up like you do in the field, you know, with like, like the, the pole, the tent poles and the camo and all that stuff in yeah. a, in a huge classroom. And, uh, and we're in this like talk almost. And we, uh, we set up uh, a set of like tactical networks that were straight out of the DOD, like the stuff you'd actually use there. And it was, I think it was brigade level network or something. And you set it up and, and then you have to secure it against hacking. And so every school has its own set of things they're securing, their own network. And the NSA tries to hack into the network. And so, mm. I mean, surprise, surprise, the NSA always wins. But it's really a game of like how long you can hold out. And then they just tear it up from really, really basic stuff to more and more advanced stuff over the days. Um, the whole exercise is about a week. And the culmination of it, like, basically they just break down everyone's networks from from their side and just... You know, kind of flex their NSA muscles a little bit. Yeah, but it's it's a cool learning exercise, and it, it helps you really understand 
some of the approaches that that are used to infiltrate networks. And and like I, like you said, I was on the red team, so I my job was to lead the little team that hacked into our network before the NSA started, so that we could patch up little vulnerabilities or identify gaps we had. And that's something that happens in business nowadays too. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's I mean, if you think about the major corporations today, there's any number that are hacked on a daily basis, right? There's denial of service attacks that are big news items over the past six to 12 months where very major companies had their services dropped for, you know, full days at a time. Yeah. So were you guys like the most fit uh, cybersecurity team at the conference, just being from West Point? (laughs) I can imagine what the competition looked like, you know, not to to cast a wide net or anything. (laughs) Uh, I would say we were probably the the highest PT scores out of the bunch. Yeah. So everyone plays a sport, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Everyone yeah. plays uh, some kind of a sport, either intramural or, or I guess NCAA or club. Yeah. Which one were you? Uh, moved around. So I didn't recruit for anything when I came in. I mistakenly had wrestled a little bit, and I, I went to the wrestling tryouts. Like, oh, this would be great. I can wrestle, and they. They passed out little three by five cards and said, write down how many national championships you have. I was like, okay, cool. Not for me. So, (laughs) so, uh, um, bounced out of that. I did intramurals my first year. I did sprint football, which is, um, kind of like lightweight NCAA football. It's intercollegiate, but for people that weigh the number changes, but 165 or less, I think it's at 185 now or something. So you get bigger and bigger every year, but it's, it's basically designed for people who can't make the real football team. They can play this other football team. Did that for two years, and then my senior year just did intramurals and really like some combatives type stuff, but nothing yeah. like club sport or anything. I was there watching a buddy graduate from like a uh, grad school program, but that was sponsored by West Point, and we got to visit the wrestling team, and uh, they're serious, man. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's one of the uh, that's one of those sports that you kind of like. It's very American, you know. It's close hold. Yeah. Right. West Point. West Point wants to be good. Same kind of with football in the run game, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Still throwing that eye formation out there. It's kind of like uh, yeah, it very American sports. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean their wrestling team's serious. As I say, my, my roommate was actually a, my sophomore year was a wrestler, and he was just in unbelievable shape. Absolute character. He played rugby as well. Phenomenal guy. But that that uh, the wrestling team is legit for sure. But when you're going through as a cadet, right, and you're a wrestler, you got to cut weight. You're probably probably tired all the time. I think the same, or not the same, but something similar with the uh, the football players. Like if you're an offensive lineman, you're 300 pounds during the season, then you have to pass a PT test to graduate, <laughs> right? Yeah. There's just like that extra level with being a yeah. cadet athlete. I'll tell you, right? I do not envy the uh, the lineman on the football team. That's for sure. They really. They, they spend their four years trying to do everything they can to beat Navy and have a, a great season. And then, you know, as soon as the season ends, it's like, all right, cool. Now you got to drop 200 pounds or something. <laughs> you got to lose a human in weight right now <laughs> to be able to graduate. Do you know Villanueva? Does he overlap with you? I think he does. I don't know him. My good friend, actually, though, is he's still in, in soft. And um, they're, I think they were on the team together at the same time. So I talked to my buddy about him. <laughs> yeah. But I, I've never we- met Villanueva. We, uh, we got to get him at some point. Got to we'll, get him we'll on. Find, yeah, we'll find a way. <laughs> we'll find a way. So super smart dude and branched infantry. So what is the thing with, if you enlist in the Army, 
the infantry, you basically need to know how to like put the square <laughs> in the square hole. And then they say, congratulations, you can be infantry. But if you go to a service academy, it's like incredibly competitive in the top of the class branches infantry. Why is that? I don't know. Honestly, I think the, the big thing for my class, it seems, and this was a little bit out of the norm, but I think that the pattern does hold that like literally your class rank, whatever it was, take that and split it in half. And that's your rank and branch of the infantry. So you basically at the time, women couldn't branch infantry. So you take out the, the women students who couldn't do the branch. And then there's basically a handful of people that don't branch infantry until they run out of slots. So it's a, it's an insanely competitive branch at the academy. Yeah. And I think that, I don't know, I think it speaks to the, the type of person that, that they attract to the, to the academy. Guys, um, can you explain what branch infantry is? Matt. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I, all right. So I made that, I want to add a disclaimer. I made that comment having enlisted in the, in the infantry. So I just want to tell you that, you know, I also happened to knock the test out of the park. Thank you very much. But okay. So Ben branch means a couple things, right? right? Like branch, army, Navy, air force, Marines branch within your service is basically what classification of job you do. So an example of a branch would be infantry, artillery, armor, which is tanks, intelligence, quartermaster, which is like supply and logistics, that kind of thing. And so when you enlist, you sign a contract to have a certain job description, which is within a branch and you go to basic training, then train for that. For officers, you select your branch coming out of your university or OCS or ROTC. I don't know a ton about that. So the academy is the, um, or at least in the army at West Point, there's a whole ceremony around everything, but in this case, branch night. And so they do a whole cell thing where it's called the combined arms tailgate. And they just have every single branch represented in the army. And a bunch of the professors that work there, which are almost exclusively military, they're representing their branches and they go through and kind of sell you. And they try to you know, say why their branch is the best. And then on the formal branch night, um, you go in and you've already like selected a rank order of your your picks, one to, I don't know how, there are, how many there are now, 32, whatever branches. And then the system comes back and says, well, there's only this many slots. So we're going to pick the top people until we run out of people for the slots. Then they have something called force branching, which is basically, we don't want the most highly sought after branches to only get the highly uh, ranked cadets. And then the lowest ranked branches get the lowest ranked cadets. So they mix it up a little bit. And then branch night, you go in, everybody's in one big auditorium in full, like fancy military dress at the academy. And then uh, you open up your envelope and it's got your your branch insignia. And then that that's the first time you figure out like what you're going to do for the next five years of your life, basically. And it's kind of a surprise and you get really excited. Some people are really upset and uh, you ultimately have a path forward for a little while. And then you have the same concept as branch night with post night. So you, you pick your post. So I guess... Something that's kind of similar for me was graduating the SF course and you find out what group you're going to. It, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's loosely determined by what language you're learning, but uh, it's still kind of like that surprise and, you know, if you got the one you wanted or not. I mean, they're, they're all going to be great, but, you know, you have this idea of when you're in. And you got to go to Italy too. So you're a uh, you're brand new army infantry lieutenant. You go to ranger school, airborne school, and you go to 173rd in Italy, right? Which is kind of a cool unit and a cool place to be. 
Yeah, it was um, an absolutely amazing way to start out a career. If anybody has the opportunity, I would love to uh, recommend Italy as just a, a post, but also just as a country to hang out in if you can. The culture is phenomenal. The people are great. And as a brand new, like 22-year-old, 21-year-old lieutenant, it's a great place to just start out. So you get there and this is right after the 173rd has like it's this run in Afghanistan, this like brutal run where I think they made a documentary about one of the outposts. And I know there are a couple guys who received Medal of Honor. What was it like showing up during that time? It's interesting. There is this kind of fabled unit, right, that I was I was going to go join. And I, just because of timing and, you know, never that's how the Army works, is um, I missed the deployment by, I think, like two weeks or something. So if you're too late in a, in a year or plus long deployment cycle, they just keep you at the base, right? They don't deploy you. And then as the unit comes back, you kind of join it at that point. But I was right after that kind of end of the window. And so my time, the first couple of months, I think two months that I was there was focused on helping the the unit kind of in the, the rear of on or the kind of the forces that are left behind, the kind of the skeleton crew, manage the the battalion or the brigade at the time and make sure that everything's still running on the back end, families are taken care of, that kind of stuff. Did you say that you were mortuary affairs officer? No. So they, is that um, what that means? SCMO? What is that? Yeah. So a, a SCOMO is, it's basically just a, it stands for summary court martial officer, but it's basically... An appointment that happens when, whenever somebody is killed in action, they appoint somebody to kind of take care of their affairs on their behalf. Uh, so that's what I did in my kind of welcome to the unit. We had some really, you know, tough couple of weeks here and, and you're now kind of on point for helping to settle the affairs of, of these four folks. So it was, um, it was definitely a sobering uh, experience and way to kind of join a unit, especially where you know, you're really pumped and you want to go, you know, join the fight and, and all that stuff. And then this is like the first thing you really have a responsibility for. And uh, it makes it a lot more real, I think. And it takes the allure, the, you know, the things you think about in terms of uh, like in the movies, it looks like this type thing. It, it takes all that out of it and makes you kind of think about the consequences and the risks that that soldiers take every day. Hi, everybody. I want to take a second to tell you about an organization called Elite Meat. Elite Meat supports members of the military special operations communities as they transition from service by connecting them with business leaders. A network-centric organization, Elite Meat promotes the extraordinary value and leadership experience of its elite transitioning veterans to premier organizations through a series of conferences, events, and a digital community. The organization provides opportunities for its vets to meet with corporate partners and learn about a variety of industries while interacting with a community of peers with shared experience. Elite Meat provides access to an unmatched talent pool and works with corporate partners willing to recognize the unique value elite veterans bring to a team. Since its inception in 2017, Elite Meat has been a resource for over a thousand transitioning special operations veterans and has hosted more than 25 events with over 300 corporate supporters. If you're a special operator transitioning careers, a business leader looking for elite talent, or a potential supporter who wants to enable their organization to grow, visit EliteMeetUS.org to find out more. That's EliteMeetUS.org. We also want to talk about Sally Roberts' organization, Wrestle Like a Girl. 
We spent a good bit of time talking to Sally herself on our last episode and wanted to make sure that you knew to visit them at WrestleLikeAGirl.org. If you didn't catch her on the last episode, make that your next listen. In addition to speaking with Sally, it was inspiring for us to see through their website just how they're advancing their sport while making such a positive impact in young women's lives. Visit WrestleLikeAGirl.org or follow them on Instagram at WrestleLikeAGirl underscore. Thanks. Let's get back to the show. So when you finally join your unit, what's it like, you know, being kind of new at your job and having a bunch of people just coming back and, you know, how do you gain credibility and take charge and and how much of a give and take is that? So I think it's, it's just an interesting experience. Again, like, you know, I'm a lieutenant printed off the lieutenant assembly line. I come out and brand new infantry officer. You got my, my Ranger tab at Airborne. I'm thinking, you know, high speed and and I joined the unit and, and these guys come back from, like I said, a, a really tough deployment and a lot of a lot of guys with a lot of very serious kind of experiences and retrospectively, a lot of awards that are given or are presented on behalf of the, the folks of the unit. But but all that stuff happens because they went through a very like trying and, and tumultuous time. And so, you know, they come back and, and you can tell like it's going to be a tough way to, to stand up a brand new kind of platoon image as a platoon leader. And, and so I, I think that the approach I took was more just trying to understand a little bit, whatever I could about their experience and give them space and then let them recover mentally and, and kind of physically a little bit. And, you know, initially, I think you think about, you know, discipline in the army, you, you know, that's something that people have an image of and there's a ton of it. Absolutely. But when people come back from experiences like that, it's not the time, you know, it's not the time or the place. They don't want to you know, quote, play the army games. So yeah, it's being a little more lenient. And that's a kind of a tough thing to do as a brand new lieutenant, because they don't train you to, to be lenient and, and let, let folks, you know, right. slide a little bit. So I think that was the approach I took initially. After the first little bit, we focused on bringing the guys together. We did barbecues, all that kind of typical stuff, and then tried to involve the families as much as possible in what we were doing. And then it was part, you know, part and parcel time for the train up again. So those things... At the time, I'm not sure how it is now, but at the time, the turns were you're on, you're off, you're on, you're off. So it was, you know, pretty quickly time to start gearing back up and going through a, a progression to make sure you're qualified to deploy again. So I think it was interesting to see that transition too, where, you know, the guys were broken down a little bit and then they kind of started getting their heads back in the game. And then it was, you know, almost like a light switch. All right, we got some training stuff to do. Let's, it's game time. We got to be ready for this next time. So... Yeah. You know, kind of being a part of that that buildup again was was pretty cool. In an infantry platoon, how much turnover is there between deployments around that time? Are you taking mostly the same guys that came back, or I'm sure there's some new guys, some guys you know change units. Yeah, I think it depends. Honestly, a lot of folks re uh, re up, right? They sign another contract to stay in the unit. So there's a lot of that where where folks don't want to leave, so they'll kind of continue to sign contracts to extend their time with the stipulation they have to stay in Italy. So we actually, I think, had less turnover than I would imagine most units tend to have. We had a lot of new guys join and the platoons would shift around, but the unit itself kind of moved people around to slots to, to keep them in the unit. So yeah, I mean, I think the, the continuity you get from that though is, is invaluable and the institutional knowledge is, is powerful. I mean, at the time, you never know where you're going to go or get slated as a unit to redeploy. We were looking, we were supposed to go to Iraq, which I mean... 
sure, but the unit had been in Iraq in years and years. And why? I guess it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but okay. And then we found out that we were going back to the exact same spot they had just come from. And so I think morale took a bit of a bump there, a little hit, I guess, negative. <laughs> yeah. um, in terms of like, oh, Jesus, like we just had this really tough deployment and and now we're going right back to the same place. But on the flip side of that, I mean, everybody knew everything about that area. So it was almost like going back to something where you didn't have to relearn the the terrain. They had they knew all the village elders still and and all that. So it wasn't even like a we were gone type thing. We just kind of came back to the same spot. So how did it feel for them? Like we were here for a year. We took a year off. We came back. Had any progress been made or <laughs> did we come back to, you know, another shit sandwich? It's tough, right? Like big picture army strategy, which I, I kind of got into a little bit later in my, my time in the army, but it's a really tough thing to, to balance tactically and strategically. And the reason why we are in a valley or not in a valley. So, you know, went back to the same spot. It was kind of the same, the same game as last time. And less kinetic, like substantially less kinetic because we weren't up in the Korangal Valley. We were down in the lower kind of the Kunar province proper valley. I, I think more of a, like a shaping experience where people are, we're going in and we're trying to give money to, to towns to build like dams and walls and stuff and minor improvement stuff, but really focused on developing the, the local economy versus securing. I think we had started with securing and now we're moving on to the next phase of everything. So that was good to see. I think progress in that regard. But there's also kind of moving in and out of things that I think after we left, they decided to just kind of pull people out of the Korangal Valley, which that really, I think, frustrated a lot of people who had been there and lost friends. And and then we, we pull out of this place that they worked so hard to build a footprint in. So what was your own experience like there? The crux of it was I was a platoon leader for the buildup. And then I switched slots into an XO slot, executive officer. So your role functionally changes at that point, And you're more in charge of the base logistics, like making sure that the planning happens at the company level, uh, that kind of stuff. So my total focus shifted from hyper-tactical to making sure that like the the trucks were there, the aircraft was there, like whatever had to happen was happening. And then um, coordinating mostly with external, like people outside of our, our unit. And I think that was a, a good experience. I I was really pissed at the time. I, I wanted to deploy and, and be a tactical platoon leader. That was Again, what I pictured, right, as a, a kid growing up, I was going to be like my dad, right, tactical fighter in, in the war. And uh, and then I, I I kind of came to grips with the experience after I had a conversation with my battalion commander at the time who had been on the prior deployment. And he had told me that if you think about it, you know, I, I put you in this role for a reason. And it's, you know, I, I've been to the Kunar province and, you know, you better believe me that you can be chosen six, which is the company commander at any given moment, right? Like that things can flip on a dime. And so I need a strong leader who's ready to step up at, at any moment. And so I think that, you know, probably told me that to make me feel good, but, um, but also I, I think it was, it was kind of right on the mark where a lot of things can change pretty quickly. And so I did take that really seriously. And I think it was the right thing. It got me motivated to, to really focus and buckle down on the, the kind of the train up of the guys, even though I wasn't a platoon leader anymore, I wouldn't tactically be there leading them. It really mattered that they were absolutely ready for everything. And then I, I delivered everything to them. They needed to fight. So I just took my, my job as an XO a lot more, more seriously, I think, than I maybe otherwise would have. Hmm. The, the job of an XO and deployment is not 
glamorous. <laughs> you, you're basically, I was in charge of a, a combat outpost or a cop. It's a small base with our company on it. So you think about that's probably like 150 or 200 people, something like that. And so I was in charge of the, the base that they lived on, supported them. We made sure there was food for them, bullets, fuel, all that stuff. And then, you know, the, the big thing, the kind of the contracting officer, I think it was called, I don't remember, but the big thing for EXOs is that you have to also work with third-party nationals and kind of local contractors to make sure that you're um, getting improvements to the base built in a quick manner that's all around force protection. That's kind of the focal point. So I made a, uh, an effort there to focus on, I think you'll remember these, Matt, but they were, uh, they were bee huts. They're little like plywood buildings you live in. Yeah. Um, so we had those on the base that we lived on initially. And in the, the vein of just kind of always trying to improve your position, worked on getting a contract and eventually built some like brick and mortar kind of solid buildings. And when I had initially flown in, I was on something called Advon, which you fly in before the unit flies in to the base. And so I was there ahead of time and, and the unit before us had gotten mortared and it hit one of the bee huts. And luckily the, the platoon happened to be on patrol at the time, but it completely decimated the bee hut and it would have killed anybody in it. And so I think that stuck with me a little bit where I was like, huh, this is, this is pretty real. And so when I kind of, I focused on building these kind of hardened structures, I think it was for a purpose where, you know, at the end of our deployment, we, our, our unit luckily didn't have any casualties from from anything like that. And, uh, and when we transitioned with the, the new unit coming in, like immediately after, I think a couple weeks later, uh, a mortar hit right outside one of those kind of hardened structures. And again, if it had been a bee hut, like that would have definitely injured a lot of people. And, um, with this, it just kind of blew up the generator outside and they lost power, but who cares? And it, it felt kind of good to like have an impact like that, that it wasn't direct. It wasn't something that I was, you know, tactically involved in, but it did kind of give you that warm and fuzzy of like things you do do matter sometimes. So I think that that kind of shaped it a little bit for me as the importance of XOs and other kind of other troops that aren't pulling the trigger on the battle space. Yeah. I remember Micah Niebauer talking about this. He had an experience as an XO and then he knew other officers that didn't have the XO experience. And he said they totally looked at the world differently. <laughs> Absolutely. Because it, it's kind of like how the sausage gets made. Like, how do things just work? How do people get fed? How do buildings get built? <laughs> yeah. So where did you head after Italy? I was uh, in transition. You spend about three years on any one duty station. And so my time had come up on Italy and transitioned back to the States. I, from the time I was at the academy, I was like, oh, I'm going to go. I'm going to go SF. I'm going to be a special forces officer. That's, that's my goal. And I, I really was passionate about that. So I went to a selection, SF selection, and there I, I just complete random chance stepped into a pothole and, and something called the star course. It's just like a, a really long navigation course. You're obviously familiar, Matt. And it was like the first 30 minutes of the star course. And this thing takes you like 12 hours. And so I, I step in this pothole and completely blow my knee out. I tore my ACL and MCL and had fractures in my leg and stuff. So it was, it was pretty bad. And then kind of ground my way through completing the star course and then into team week, which like eventually I just couldn't keep up with like ruck running and stuff. It was just, my knee was this big, you know, softball and I just couldn't physically like muscle through it anymore. So that was one of those 
major kind of disappointments in my my career where I stepped back and I was ashamed for a reason that I don't even think, I mean, in retrospect, after looking back on it, I was like, why was I ashamed? Like, that was a pretty, pretty cool accomplishment. Like, you, you kind of muscle your way through a very, like, painful experience for a very prolonged amount of time. I ended up kind of taking pride out of that. But I think at, at, at the moment, especially, I was like, well, you know, there goes my my future. I'm not going to be in SF anymore. What am I going to do with my, my life? <laughs> and yeah. uh, and so, you know, I think one of those those things where, you know, my, my failure story, it, it really helped me step back and think about the importance of kind of continuing to drive on and perseverance through things. And then also the ability to, to step back and, you know, change goals when it makes sense. Like, have the grit to drive through things, but have the intelligence to to step back and think about the broader picture and and then strategically make a shift when it makes sense. So I think this is one of those things where a door closed and another one opened pretty much right after I was making the transition and friends reached out to me and said, hey, you should think about this business school thing. I was like, okay, that sounds cool. <laughs> How much attention did you had you paid to any type of non-military career before that point? I hadn't really thought much about it. I expected to be a military officer like my dad and, you know, climb the ranks through a career. So how did your mindset shift after that? I mean, it, yeah, it's a setback, but what were the things that really influenced you starting to think differently? I think it was a little bit of my, my next duty station. I, I went to a brigade staff and we deployed to a beautiful camp here in Kuwait, which is just... <laughs> Ah, an amazing experience. It's like a 130 degrees. It's like someone took a opened an oven and started throwing sand in your face and just with a blow dryer blowing it in your face. That was Camp yeah. Uring. And um okay. And so we were there as a brigade on a kind of strategic mission. We were the ready reaction force for the the whole area in the Middle East and CENTCOM. And so it was a different whole strata of the military. It was interesting to see. I definitely learned an absolute ton from that experience and how the the big the big machine works, the DOD itself and, and Department of the Army works. So I think that was valuable from that perspective. But it was also a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a, I wouldn't say awakening, but a shift in mindset to like, man, this is a big machine, like a really, really, really big machine. And it's going to take me a career to work my way up to any level where I'm going to be able to impact it. And I don't know if I want to wait that long to make a change. Because, I mean, one of the threads a little bit, my my life so far has been focused on, like, if I don't like something, then I just change it. Like, I don't like the majors, I'm just going to make a new one. Things like that, where I just I just don't like to necessarily accept something like that. So I, there's stories of definitely of people making um, moves within the DOD that that give them very large influence at a young age. But I think that's where my, my mind started to shift a little bit to maybe the private sector has something like I'm looking for where I can make an outsized impact at an earlier age. Okay. And you all, and you had other people, cause like, look, our show has been invaded by West pointers and <laughs> Navy, Navy grads and all that. <laughs> so you obviously had friends who had done the business school route. So did you see B school as this like transitionary phase where you could kind of figure out what the next step was? <laughs> I think another vein in my life so far has been that I don't plan all that far in advance. I just have a, a vision and then I figure it out as I go. <laughs> okay. um, so I thought private sector, I love finance. I love investing. Maybe I'll just work at a hedge fund. 
sounds flippant mm. and easy. I just assumed it was. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. I thought, you know, I got to transition by way of something that teaches me about finance a little bit. I don't know anything about it. So let me go to, to business school and, and maybe take a couple classes to see if I actually like this stuff and then figure it out from there, I guess. So you, how'd you start like prepping, applying? From the hip, as usual. I was about to deploy to, to Kuwait and one of my buddies was like, hey, well, if you want to go to business school, you got to take this GMAT thing. So I signed up for it. I was like, I think a week out from deploying and I signed up for the class on that or the test on that Saturday and just jammed for, for a week and then took the test and, um, and then got a, a score that was good enough to apply to business schools. And you applied to like some big schools, right? Yeah. I think one of the pieces of advice you, I got, and I, I tell yeah. this to folks, cause like, it's just, I didn't really think that much about it. I think it's one of those things that people undersell their marketability pretty often. And yeah. the the military especially, there's a lot of extremely talented people in the military. And it's just setting your goals high enough that you actually achieve things that are outside of what you even expected to be able to, but very much are in line with where you honestly should be instead of underselling yourself and, and benchmarking lower than than you otherwise might. So you started this chain of like a bunch of officers that you knew all coming out and going through Wharton Business School, which is where Ben and I went to. <laughs> yeah, no, my, my buddy actually started it. He, uh, best man at my okay. wedding. Um, yeah. We were part of the XO Mafia, as you kind of alluded to. It was um, right. myself, my buddy, and uh, another guy. We were three different XOs and three different companies. And one of us went, that was my, my first, my, my best man. He went to Wharton said, hey, man, this, this Wharton thing's great. And then I went, and then our other buddy went, and then he told somebody, one of his buddies, and I, you know, basically this chain of like probably seven officers that were all in the same unit together ended up going in succession to Wharton. <laughs> hmm. um, but it's, it's one of those things where like the, the network matters and you don't know to even apply unless, unless one of your friends tells you that it might be an option. Yeah. So, you know, that's something that I've, I was oblivious to in the army was the whole concept of having a network. And, and you know, it gets a really, really dirty connotation when people talk about that, you know, networking, quote unquote, but it's just brown nosing um, in the army, right? Yeah. In the army, it's like, Oh, pff, this guy's political wants to be the you know, general, that kind of thing. And, yeah. and in reality, it's, it, it's an incredibly important aspect of being a professional. And if you do it right, it's not transactional, right? It's not like, oh, do this thing for me and I'll do this thing for you or just, you know, a leech, you know, trying to find people to do stuff for you. It's building like common sense partnerships and strong friendships. That's kind of how our network brought everybody through Warden was just friends telling friends like, hey, you know, we have very similar backgrounds. You should think about this thing I'm doing. I like it. You'd probably like it too. Just, you know, put it on the radar. Mm. So I remember a conversation you had where you said that when you showed up to business school, you were like, okay, great. I'm going to learn some stuff. I'm going to take some time to figure out what I actually want to do next. And then someone said, Hey, if you're not interviewing for consulting or investment banking right now, you're behind the curve. And this is two weeks in. Yeah. It was like a just very abrupt experience where I get there. All right, I'm going to figure out how to live my civilian life here. I'm going to have my khakis and button down, which I later found out was not the cool thing to wear to class. And, uh, (laughs) and, uh, the opposite yeah, I, thing to order class. So. Yeah, it is. It really is. And so I, I go into it and, um, and it literally, it, 
immediately they were like, well, you know, this is the first of many info sessions around consulting. The next day was banking. And if, if you're not in these sessions, then you're, you've missed the boat. And so very quickly, you have to make a decision that's fairly major in terms of what general direction you're going to take. I feel like most people maybe have a, a, li- a little bit of that guide before they apply to business school. But, you know, I, I thought finance because I like investing. So I'll do the, the banking route. So that's the one I picked to the, the major tracks and then kind of did that recruiting pipeline. You also did a couple other things when you were at school since you went full time. And this <laughs> kind of makes me think of the comment that you made about always improving your position, right? Or leaving somewhere better than you found it. So you worked a little bit with the VA and then you continued to work in like um, data and analytics, I think, and just kept improving things. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, early on, I went to the VA to sign in, right? Like the, I'm out processing and then I go to the VA. First. Yeah, I went, to, I went to Philly. I signed in and uh, just to get my little ID card and, and whatever I needed to get like on their roster or whatever. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I, I go through that process and it took me the whole day. And I waited around a whole bunch to, to see the different, like five different signatures I needed on this piece of paper uh, mm-hmm. or whatever it was. This is this process that felt very arcane. And so immediately I was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, this Wharton degree, but I, I feel like I can probably spend a little bit of time just figuring out how to in-process people at this VA hospital. That might be just a, a thing I can do with some free time. So I worked over the next like six months or so to set up like a, a consulting practicum, which basically just means you, you have on loan free consulting services from the student body. So uh, a bunch of vets from the vet club got together. We had a professor there who ran a, we have a, an MDA or an MD program there that's very, uh, very strong as well. A lot of folks do kind of dual MBA, MD tracks. So they become doctors with business degrees. Hmm. Uh, this guy was in both of those colleges or graduate programs. And uh, he had a very strong connection with the VA. And so we connected with him and, and he, but I didn't realize this about the VA, but it, it's actually already very strongly partnered with local universities. And so something like half of the VA staff in Philly at the time were Penn doctors. So it's very, very tightly knit with the Penn medical community. And that partnership is very strong in terms of support. So, you know, I think big surprise in that aspect initially. And then the, the practicum actually, we did, I think it was four or five consulting gigs that first turn. Then the next year we did another five or six and looked to kind of broaden the program out. So we contacted other vet uh, vet programs at different MBA schools across the country and try to see if they'd be willing to set something up that was similar and use the contacts we had in the VA to to kind of get that ball moving. So I think it, it, it got some momentum. We talked to, at the time, the secretary of the VA about it. He was pumped. Uh, but then there was kind of a changing of the guard. And like everything else, any pet projects kind of die on the vine when uh, when the, the head boss switches out. So yeah. uh, I don't think that's a thing going on anymore. But but yeah, that was a, it was a really interesting way to understand the VA. And, and honestly, you know, it gets a, a really bad rap and there's a lot of bad stories about the VA. There's, there's also a ton of really great stories and they do a lot of phenomenal work for vets. So I actually, when I was looking to leave initially in the, the banking side of the house, I, I had a contact there that was still fairly senior. And I, I, I almost took a job working for the VA in terms of like an innovation program they had, but that obviously got nixed and no longer exists. Maybe it does. I don't know, but not in the, in the form it was. So, hmm. yeah, I've been 
thrilled with the VA. I mean, I, I go to the Manhattan one, and I've had surgery there. And my uh, my general practitioner there, he's great. You know, yeah. So I think it was getting a bad rap for a while, but maybe I just got the improved version by the time I got out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not like uh, born on the Fourth of July. Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, Ben. There's your obscure movie reference for the episode. But, I mean, it's not that obscure, but. Uh, there you go. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Also, you have like, uh, what is it? The People Analytics Conference at Wharton? Yeah, that's another like just passion that I have is is generally using data to make decisions. It's yeah. it's one of the cornerstones of how Wharton just frames everything they do is like, don't make decisions from the gut. Try to use data to substantiate it. Oh, yeah, um, we know. You have math in every class. Every class. It's that, all math. That's like a key. <laughs> that's like, so people ask like, should I go to Wharton? What's different about Wharton? Is it math in every class? <laughs> Think about the the business aspect of that, though, right? The implication. No, is, I well, love it. Why yeah. aren't Why aren't we using math in business more frequently yeah. for everything? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so the the People Analytics Conference. I was part of the initial founding team. It's just it, it's incredible how passionate the studio body is there, and then how if somebody has an idea they want to run with, they can find five or ten other people to help support it. Kind of like I did with the VA consulting thing. Somebody else said I had this interest in people analytics, which is like using data to make smarter HR decisions, basically. And so I, I was like, well, that sounds kind of cool. I like data and analytics, so let me help you stand that up. And then the uh, professor who spearheaded it or sponsored it was Adam Grant, who's a phenomenal, I, I mean, an insanely talented professor. Yeah, um, he's pretty famous, too, in the business world. He's Yeah, he's famous. He's, he's accredited with a bunch of books and stuff. But I, I think what stands out to me was uh, two things. One, day one, we go into to our big kind of, you know, auditorium type classroom, and there's probably 100 people in the room, and there's three of these in that day, in the morning, right? So 300 people. And he walks in and just says, name tapes down. And he just goes down the line and names every single student by name for all 300 kids, which is insane. And then... Fast forward, I haven't talked to him in years, and he came to, to our uh, company to talk, and he was on the stage kind of presenting, talking about some stuff. He saw me in the audience and then pulled an obscure thing from his memory about what presentation I did in his class where I happened to wear a red dress. You know, it just maybe it stood out, but he, uh, he called that out by name in the middle of the meeting or in the middle of the presentation, just in stride in his conversation, which was insane. Like his recall and his comfort in presenting is, is just impressive. You think but, anyone ever had to take a, a restraining order out on him? Got him freaked out? <laughs> no, I mean he doesn't forget anything. Calls out though, people's so. addresses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, but no, so the the people at Atlas conference though it was it, it started out that first year with some pretty heavy hitters. It had Laszlo Bach from from Google. He ran people analytics for Google, and then. Some, some various other folks that were very senior in their field, the head of an NFL team, the head of a, a bank in their HR department, some like really top tier executives and had them in the, in the discussion on a kind of I don't, almost like pulling the Rolodex out from Adam Grant. And so, you know, that started it and then it's still going on and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's it's one of those cornerstone conferences for anything related to people analytics. So it's really fascinating and it has some of the cutting edge research going on in the field presented there. Yeah. Did you say red dress? I did say that. Yeah. I, 
I wore a red dress for our presentation and it apparently stood out. I looked good in it. I was, you know, fresh out of the army, so still fit, yeah. not not my current bod. How could it not stand out? <laughs> hey, we got an A on the presentation, so, you know, it's all that matters. Hi, everybody. We want to take a second just to thank everyone who's listening and has been listening. If you're enjoying the show, please go ahead and share it with some other people and help us get the word out. As you know, by now, you can always find us on Twitter or Instagram at thankyounowwhat or by visiting our website at thankyounowwhat.com. Even by emailing us directly, thankyounowwhat at gmail.com. Ben and I both read each and every email. If you really like what we're doing here and you'd like to share the cost of doing business with us, there are a couple options. You can give a one-time donation via the PayPal link on our website, or you can become one of our beloved Patreon patrons by visiting patreon.com slash thankyounowwhat. With Patreon, you can subscribe to automatically give a set amount per episode. The lowest tier is just a dollar. As always, please know that Ben and I are volunteering our time and effort and that all net proceeds from this podcast will be directed to nonprofits that support veterans right after covering basic expenses like hosting, software, and equipment. You can also choose to give directly to nonprofits we feature, which we appreciate as well. Thanks, and let's get back to the episode. One more thing about school is you met your wife there. I did. Phenomenal opportunity to do a lot of things, you know, change careers and learn a lot of academics, but also a great way to meet, you know, the future spouse. Yeah. She went to consultant consulting. You went to investment banking. Is your apartment just full of whiteboards? <laughs> uh, at the time, it wasn't full of a lot. Our first year, she was on the road every week and I was in the office every day till pretty late hours. So, yeah. you know, the, the, the house was kind of pristine because we never really touched most things in it. But no, it was it was good. We had two very demanding jobs to start out yes. with, which I think uh, helped frame some different decisions we wanted to make after that. And also, I think what's what's good is kind of contrasting to my, my parents, where my mom kind of de facto had to follow my dad around. One of the things we're, we're really trying to adamantly keep in check is both of our desires to have strong professional careers while balancing that with family. And it's going to be one of the great challenges. We know that kind of eyes wide open. It's going to be really hard to do. But yeah. um, but it's also one of those things where, I mean, you got two, two high-achieving folks. I think if anybody can make it work, hopefully we can. So You've both since moved on from those roles, but we'll talk about that in a second. I wanted to ask you, can you summarize the taxonomy of working in finance when people say... I'm going to work in finance. Yeah. I think that's like when I say I'm going to be an SF officer or I'm going to work at a hedge fund. I just say it. I don't have any context or experience in that world to know whether or not I want to do it. I think that gets thrown around a lot. People are like, well, I'm going to be an investment banker. I'm going to work in finance. And and they might have a, you know, a, a second or third order understanding of what that means. But I think in practice, what it is, is a lot of really long hours. You grind through a ton of time in Excel, a ton of turns on PowerPoint materials to present to a client once or maybe not even flip through. But I I think that one of the things that really kind of gets me about it that that I think is kind of twofold, right? It's two sides of the same coin is you do a lot of repetitive work. Like it's, it's very much a machine that's running and you sure you look at different companies, you look at, look at different 
combinations or opportunities of those companies or whatever the the specific banking group does. But ultimately, it's it's repeating the same general process over and over and over and over. And I think that's good to an extent that you learn it, right? I think you come at a learning curve unbelievably fast in investment banking because you're doing the same general type of analysis day in and day out for like 80, 90, 100 hours a week. So you get those reps in fast. I think the other side of that coin, obviously, is is the impact to your mental well-being and sleep deprivation and and mistakes start getting made pretty frequently. Small ones, they get caught generally, but but I think there's this aspect of almost like a culture to work that is inefficient. And I think one of the things that I've stepped back from this experience with is that I, I don't like inefficiency. I think if, if there's something that's repetitive and the process is generally similar, that is like right down the fairway for automation in my current role. So you look at things like that and, and I think about different pivots or opportunities coming out of it. There's definitely opportunities to to restructure how finance works, the, the process of finance. There's also taking that knowledge set that you build, you're, you get an incredibly sharpened toolkit in terms of ability to model in Excel, ability to build decks that are client ready that a CEO can look at and, and kind of discern information out of pretty quickly. So your ability to structure and present information is, is top notch. And I know that's not the main focus of, of banking, but that's a skill set that is universally transferable. That is, I think, uniquely honed in professional services like investment banking or consulting. So after investment banking, you move on to strategy within a big organization, and then you move on to chief data office in a big organization. What is each of those steps like? How do they build on each other for you? Yeah, and the first pivot was I was trying to look of look, look at different opportunities coming out of banking. There was obviously an opportunity to go deeper into banking in terms of either up here or something like that. Or I worked in a a product that was focused on debt. So you could take that skill set and leverage it for things like private equity or some kind of a distressed kind of investing fund that focuses on the debt side of, of the capital structure. So that would all kind of carry me deeper into finance. It would be a different look, maybe a different experience, different analytics, but ultimately the same general kind of vein of, of work. I think the benefit of working at a large organization is that you can, it's just a huge company. And so any job that exists at any big company exists at a big financial firm. So I was looking to take a pivot from finance to something that was different. I liked the aspects of my wife's job in consulting that related to helping a client understand how to position themselves, how to work on big picture strategy and implement that strategy. And I was about to kind of take a step out of the door toward a consulting firm and somebody reached out to me and said, hey, we have this really small team that does internal consulting. Would you like to join it? And so I, I had some conversations with some folks and, and joined that team as my first step out of finance. So I stayed at the financial firm, but pivoted away from hard, you know, kind of Wall Street finance into more strategy and general kind of process efficiency. Mm-hmm. And, and so that kind of pivot makes sense in my broader arc of the things I'm interested in and also helps me uh, have some continuity, staying at the same firm and keep some of the relationships I had and build upon that collateral I was building at the time. So I did that for about two years and did some internal consulting gigs that were focused on enterprise-wide things. 
And then at, at about two years, I made the decision that it was time to make another pivot. And I didn't really know what that meant. It just, I had been on the ground for a while now. And as you know, Matt, moving around in the military, you you do the same job for more than a year and a half and you get you know, a little antsy. So I was looking for a new opportunity. Didn't know exactly what that meant, but somebody had reached out to me who was on the prior team I was on and was standing up a new capability with a new strategic kind of imperative that was very data focused. And it sounded interesting. And so I, I made a pivot about a year ago to to help support that opportunity. And so have been there ever since. And and I think it's been it's been a phenomenal kind of a a stepwise experience where kind of like I was looking at in the military, where I saw this big machine and it would be so, so hard to work at a strategic level within 10 to 15 years and have a, a controlling impact versus just kind of be part of the machine. And this opportunity actually pivoted me more toward that type of a control environment where I I was the one who was building a capability, obviously in you know huge collaboration and and partnership with a ton of people across the organization, but but ultimately it was my responsibility to help stand that up. And so mm-hmm. um, I think that opportunity, it, it kind of checked that box of, of what I was looking for in the army that I, I just couldn't find, was big, large-scale impact on a multi-billion dollar business with a seat at the table where I'm not just a part of the machine, but I'm also a voice that's listened to. And I don't know where I'll go next, but I think it's been a very rewarding experience as well. Yeah, you mentioned offline that you sat down with your wife and determined there were three things you said that made you happy at work, right? Working on complex problems, improving daily life through applying technology, and then being part of decisions as they get made. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, so my wife, to her credit, is about 10 times smarter than me, and I'm lucky to, to have gotten her. She's also a really great coach. So what she helped me do when I was trying to make that initial pivot out of best of banking was instead of just grasping something like consulting, which is just the next service in line from banking, it's like, well, I'm not going to work on finance. I'm working on strategy, consulting. Her advice was to step back and say, well, what do you actually like? When you go into work every day, what gets you excited about that, that next day of work? And kind of toggling on and off those things as you think about them. And so you think maybe like one thing might be pay, right? So if they paid me substantially more for a new opportunity, would that change my happiness or would it stay about the same? And same on the other side, they paid me less. Would I be okay with that? I mean, I wouldn't love it, but would ultimately, would I be okay? And so going through the process of elimination and really kind of thinking through the aspects of things that get me fired up to go into to the job. I mean, the problems have to be big, complex, hairy, confusing problems to get me interested. The bigger the problem, the better. And trying to figure out how a huge number of people spend their their days and how we as a company deploy billions of dollars of resources on a daily basis is a very complex problem. The aspect around leveraging technology to make people's lives better, easier, is right down the, uh, the fairway on that other aspect I talked about with efficiency. Like, it being inefficient drives me insane. And every time I see something that's inefficient, I want to go fix it. Yeah. And so this, this role is, is completely focused on making our processes as efficient as possible and freeing people up to do more value-add work versus the kind of work that just sucks their day away from them and they come home drained and frustrated that they wasted half their day on whatever they were doing that was meaningless. But if you give 
the ability to leverage technology to people that streamlines their workflows, helps make better decisions, and ultimately makes them happier as they work. I think that for me is very rewarding. And so, you know, this this role also gives me that aspect. And then obviously, like you said, decision-making. I, I need to be at the table. I don't want to get the orders. I want to be able to frame the orders and make sure it makes strategic sense. And then you know, again, I'm, I'm still kind of new to the bank in a broader context. So being able to have a seat at the table and have a voice that's listened to, I think at, at this stage in my career is is very valuable. And I value that a lot. Have you gotten to reconnect with the stuff that interested you back when you were in college? Did you ever not give it up, but ever let that take a back seat while you were serving and then got back into <laughs> it in grad school and, and banking and strategy and data? Well, I, I don't think the airborne infantry is really known for computers and data <laughs> analytics, but <laughs> but uh, but I actually did, you know, surprisingly use some stuff from uh, from my world there on deployment. We, we it, this was more engineering, but we had this uh, like a water tower that you know obviously nobody wanted to climb up onto because I mean why would you want to climb onto a a tall tower above the Hescos and do stuff? <laughs> And on a fairly frequent basis, they had to check the water level, which sounds absurd, but they had packaged it because it's really cold in the mountaintops. So um, they had to have it kind of like ready for winter, basically. And so they didn't have a way to tell how much water was in this water tower. And so I just, we, we kind of thought through it. We had this uh, thermal system that we had on the on the base. And it's like, well, can we use thermals to tell? And again, it was insulated. So we cut a little strip and put a metal strip on it, a tiny little sliver. Um, vertically down the water tower. And you could actually just see the water level on that metal strip. But it's like small little tweaks or kind of things like that that I found interesting in deployment that I think you pick up with more of an engineering mindset. Same with like, we had a, a base that was on a hill kind of. And when the pumps went out, people couldn't shower or the toilets wouldn't work, all that kind of stuff. So when we rebuilt stuff, rearranged some things, we moved the living areas slightly down the hill and the water up the hill common sense, but like it didn't need a pump, right? Like yeah. things like that. They're like simple problems that you got to think through a little bit. I think that was something where you leverage some of the simple math, like figure out how, how much of an elevation difference do you need from the water tower to your barracks or, you know, is a strip that's going to be this wide, wide enough to actually pick up temperature variations on a water, water cooler. I don't know. Like you have to do a little bit of math, but in terms of like AI ML stuff, I haven't. I didn't use that in the military at all, but but I did pick that up again in my consulting role internally. We've we started to dust off. I, I work in the chief data office, right? And so one of the organizations that's in this broader team is all of our data scientists at the bank. So it's just being in the environment with them. You you get to brush off some of the stuff that you kind of forgot almost, and come back up to speed on things and, and learn a lot more. So. I've taken advantage of that and worked on just different simple models myself that are helping to do some analytics that they're nothing in production, anything that would be decisions made off of, more for my interest to try and hone a craft a bit, but um, definitely in my future, probably things in the MLAI space, natural yeah. language processing, probably. How much of your time do you spend learning new stuff now? I'm very targeted with my time on that. So I try to... As something comes up that is a a thing I need to overcome, basically. So we had an ask, you know, this guy, Chris, that we, we both know, Matt and I. <laughs> but uh, so so Chris and I 
on that first team I was on outside of banking, I had an ask to, you know, we need to understand how many of these, these Excel spreadsheets uh, should be categorized as models. And you know, it, it's an interesting problem set and you can solve it a ton of different ways. The approach that Chris and I took was, well, it sounds like something that you could probably use machine learning if you have enough parameters or attributes that you know about those Excel files. You might be able to use something to train a model to identify things that are similar to the ones you already told me are models. So we took off on that endeavor and focused for, I mean, it was probably three weeks where I went from like blank slate, hadn't picked up anything related to coding in, since I joined the infantry. <laughs> And then three weeks later, coding in Python, some categorization models that ended up being pretty directional on, on which Excel files we should look at and ballparking the general number of models we probably have. So like very rapid learning curve, but again, extremely focused. Like that's what I did for three weeks. And I, I tend to learn that way. I'm, I'm not as good at, you know, an hour a week in perpetuity. I tend to kind of put everything aside, focus on one thing and only do that one thing for a week or two and then yeah. try to master it in as quickly, as quick of a, a learning curve as I can. Master is a very relative term, just good enough to get by as quickly yeah. as possible. I had a buddy in the SF course who was an army mechanic before he came through selection. And he said something that will always stick with me. And he said, as a mechanic, I never buy a tool I don't need, but I don't ever hesitate to buy a tool when I need it. Yeah, exactly. That's a great way to look at it. So I, I, I kind of think about information or knowledge that way. Time ultimately is my most limited resource. And so I try to spend it as needed, as efficiently as possible. So right now, obviously I'm, I'm on paternity leave right now. So all of my time is focused on my daughter being part of her life right now. And then once I go back to work as needed, like I said, I'll, I'll focus as, as much as I need to on given topics in very tight windows. To, to try to kind of solve them quickly. How gratifying is it to be able to do what you do at scale? I think extremely gratifying. It's very interesting when you can kind of pull data together and through a bunch of hard work up front and kind of structuring things, you can see some very eye-popping numbers in terms of like the way that a, a huge portion of our spent space is, is spent and the types of work that, that are being worked on and the types of things that are being done to support the bank from a technology perspective. Um, I and mean, we just, any large organization spends a huge amount on technology these days. And that number is only going to get bigger over time. And being able to pull things together and see numbers in the billions or effort measured in, in terms of like tens of thousands of people, it's, it's very gratifying to be able to kind of pull insights out of that and help leaders make decisions about that large of a cost base. And ultimately, drive out a more efficient delivery to, to our customers through that process. So it's been, it's been rewarding to work at scale and hopefully, fingers crossed, the scale only gets bigger as we uh, march forward. Aside from moving out of investment banking or realizing that you liked to do other things and sort of finding your way through a couple transitions within the same organization, what's been the most difficult thing that you've dealt with so far in your post-military life? One of the more difficult things initially is probably skill building. It's just such a different skill set that I've never had exposure to. So I think that was tough initially, like 
financial modeling. I, I don't know. I, I went to business school. They teach you one way to do it. And then, I mean, that's one thing to do it for a class. It's a different thing to do it at one in the morning and you have a, a deal the next day that has to have this model built and go through uh, review and stuff. So it, I think the skill building is you don't have time to mess around and you have to come up with learning curves really quickly. But that was difficult. I think that, I wouldn't say it's difficult, but I think it's maybe one thing that, that veterans had to bring to the fight a little bit in, in organizations they join is a bit of context or framing in terms of in relative importance. And I think one of the things that has been tough for me because of my military experience is I just can't take some things that seriously. Um, <laughs> I just can't. <laughs> and and yeah. I, I think it, it, honestly, I think it also helps people on the team when I don't like flipping about it or, you know, I don't have a, an issue directly, but being the calm presence when people are freaking out about something yeah, and just being able to say like, look, it'll be fine. And if it's not, it's not the end of the world. So right. um, I think that framework from the military is both beneficial and can be detrimental if you're not careful with it. I often go back and forth to thinking about you know, the way I do work now, but the way that, okay, hey, everyone, we're going to do this incredibly dangerous thing and some of us may die. Let me whip <laughs> out a piece of scrap paper from my pocket, <laughs> take a knee and draw this quick little diagram up. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yep. Or, I mean, as, you know, the XO perspective, right, where, like, I don't know, things were generally ballparked or rounded to a close enough number to get enough ammunition or enough fuel I wasn't really worried about counting individual things all that often. In finance, they love to count individual things pretty accurately. So, yeah, um, well, that's important. Yeah, <laughs> but it, I mean, it's just one of those things where, again, like in the tactical aspect of having the numbers right, sure, absolutely important. In the strategic aspect, when you step back and say, I mean, you know, a lot of assumptions are driving what number actually shows up from the model. So yeah. any tweak to any of those assumptions changes the number by substantial amounts. So does the dollar really matter? I don't know. Like it's a ballpark, right? It's it's to get you close. So it's one of those things where like, it's just tough for me to take the individual dollar amounts that seriously. And if you're close enough, it's probably going to be good enough to run the business. So I don't know. I think that's another aspect, but definitely general context from the military to the civilian world, different things seem to matter. Yeah, we ask our uh, our marquee question for the show, but now after kind of going through all of that, who are you if you never joined the military? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, definitely yeah. nerdier. I'm I'm probably I'm probably working at Google or something. I would have gone if I hadn't gone to the academy. I would have gone probably somewhere more technical, and or maybe not more technical, but I would have focused on technical things and obviously had a technical career after that. So. Mm-hmm. I'd probably be in Silicon Valley. Same thing with business school. Had I gone to a different business school on the West Coast, I would have probably been in tech. So I happened to go to one that's focused on finance. So I went into finance and the rest is kind of history. Marshall, it seems like you know how to roll with change and you've made a lot of pivots. And is that something that came early on for you or was there kind of a moment where it became easier or is every time just as difficult as the last? I think that the military positions you for change. You're in a new unit, new function, new role pretty consistently. Every year or two, you're in some kind of a new look. 
maybe the same familiarity of the, the big army, but ultimately a different focal point. And you come up learning curves really rapidly from that experience. I think you get better at that transition in the military just through however long, six years, 10 years, whatever it is. Then transitioning to my civilian life, I think it's almost an imperative now that I do change fairly often, at least in terms of the civilian context. It feels like it's more common than than most change. But I think the thing to think about is on the broader landscape, it's, it's only becoming more and more common for people to hop from role to role, function to function. That's going to be probably accelerated, I would imagine. And so I would just think that for most people, being comfortable with change and being comfortable with being in a new environment, learning the things that matter there very rapidly, the, the politics of the organization, the, the norms and social understandings there, and, and ultimately what the, the tactical skills are you need to be able to deliver a good product in that new role. Being able to do that, rinse and repeat as a skill set, I think is, is a valuable thing to develop for anybody in any career these days. And, and again, I think it's going to be more and more central to, to the career of the future if I think about it that way. Yeah, right on. It's like an adaptability curve. Yeah. There's yeah, EQ so. and there's adaptability. <laughs> Got to balance both. Did we hear your daughter uh, crying in the background? I think so, to... yeah. yeah. I, we're, we're over time. She's uh, she's calling back for for numero uno right now, the, she, the uh, main dad. She a close eye on the clock there? She does. She is a machine, man. She, <laughs> she eats like exactly on the hour when she needs to eat every time, no matter if she's sleeping or whatever. It's just incredible. <laughs> she probably takes after her parents. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Marshall making data-driven decisions to constantly improve the world as he passes through it. Please support our beloved nonprofits, the Coast to Coast Foundation, Small Steps in Speech, Service to School, Elite Meet, and Wrestle Like a Girl. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What.